Greetings from the Long Island Sound podcast. Welcome to the show. Please rate, review, and comment on the show. And call our listener line and leave a message for our guests. Dial 631-800-3579. All right, enjoy the show. Thanks for joining us for the Long Island Sound podcast. Each week we explore new music and dive deeper with the artists and their stories behind the music. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you stream this podcast. Here's your host, Steve Yusko. I can hardly believe it. What a great conversation, the legendary Elliot Murphy. He was deemed one of the new Dylans, and Elliot stood alongside contenders Bruce Springsteen, Loudon Wainwright III, and John Prine. This Garden City native took the industry by storm in the 70s with his acclaimed album, Aqua Show. Now residing in Paris, France, he's an American rock singer-songwriter, novelist, record producer, and journalist. He has over 35 albums in his catalog. Collaborative guests have included Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, Phil Collins, Sonny Landreth, and David Johansson, just to name a few. Let's take a listen to his duet with Bruce, Everything I Do. Everything I do Leads me back to you I see me standing in the acid rain A full of existential pain Or you can look for love so long Until you're sure you'll never feel so good again Then you came along Like an angel, like a lover, like a friend Yeah, everything I do Leads me back to you I'm a man with a hat of Sometimes afraid to show my face Hear me humming in the night When you turn out the light They can blow my tires out Till I'm filled up with nothing else Till I'm rolling on my rim Oh baby, coming back to you again Yeah, everything I do Leads me back to you When I'm on the rise When it's do or die Oh lullaby Would you take an alibi If I said it was you and I Further on Cause it's everything I do Everything I do Everything I do Leads me back to you You know it's hard for a man to sing When his pride blocks everything You can have a way with words Or when your thoughts they can't be heard But don't take it the wrong way Like half the things I ever tried to say Oh well I got my demons too But my angels, they're all cheering for you Cause everything I do It leads me back to you Yeah, everything I do 
struck by today's guest. Elliot Murphy is an American rock singer, songwriter, novelist, record producer, journalist, living in Paris. With over 35 albums and over a dozen books to his credit, Elliot Murphy epitomizes the definition of a creative. Guests on his albums have included Bruce Springsteen, Mick Taylor, Billy Joel, Phil Collins, Sonny Landreth, and David Johansson, just to name a few. You know, we have a catchphrase here on the podcast, let the music take you on a journey. So be prepared for an amazing journey as Conductor Murphy sojourns from Long Island to Paris and back again. Hey, Elliot, welcome to the Long Island Sound Podcast. So great to have you. Great to be here, Steve. So I'll give a little backstory. I was covering the Long Island Music Hall of Fame, of which uh, Elliot has been inducted to by Billy Joel. And I was, as a knucklehead, I'm looking around going, wow, who are all these people? And I got to meet you very briefly. And then I looked you up. And I'm telling you, I'm fascinated about, one, about your music. I, I really kind of dive, dove into your music over the past few days. And I think you have a fantastic story uh, about your life and where you've gone from uh, Long Island uh, to Paris and Man, there's just so much to discover. I feel like I'm contained in only an hour to chat with you. So anyway, I, bab I babble away. I apologize. So. Well, I hope I'll remember enough to fill that hour. <laughs> well, if you don't remember, what we'll do is we'll have chapter marks. And everyone we discuss, there'll be links uh, to all of Elliot's uh, information, uh, his documentary, uh, the second act of uh, Elliot Murphy uh, looks fascinating. I tried to get it up on Prime, but it wasn't. Wasn't letting me do it, and I got to figure that. Yeah, out. I think there's been a change in the distributor for the film, and hopefully it'll be back up soon. But that film that you mentioned, it, the second act of Elliot Murphy, which was made by a Spanish director, the title really comes from what how my career moved to Europe. That was my second act, and Steve, you mentioned a lot my story, and the interesting thing is, you know, we're in we're in the midst of a life and a career. We just make we're in chaos. We just make the best decision we can based on the information we have. But when I made that movie, looking back, it all seemed like a very carefully orchestrated plan that got me to where I am today. Uh, it's, 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 it's so interesting. I mean, the fact that one, and I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of thumbnailing it a bit. Here you are before the age of 30, uh, you hit the big time. What I guess what a lot of people would consider the big time in that you were uh, signed by, was it Polydor Records? And you were a rising star and, and you were, you know, hit with the moniker of one of the next Dylans, for better or for worse. And uh, I just found it very interesting, um, you know, that, that climb so, well, relatively quickly. I'm sure you put a lot behind it. Oh, but it was really quick, let me tell you, because I kind of hit the trifecta. I did had an album on Polydor, two on RCA, and one on Columbia, so three major labels. Unlike my pal Billy Joe, who really put in his time playing in bar bands in, in Long Island, or Bruce Springsteen, who did the same thing on the Jersey Shore. Mm -hmm. I went to Europe in 1971, kind of with a guitar and just started writing songs over there. And I got back, we played shows in Manhattan for a few months before I got signed. Wow. So, and it was signed to Polydor. It was not a big signing, you know, it was just the head of A&R really liked me and liked my music. 
he ended up producing the album and then the album came out and just got this this tsunami of critical response which the label was not really expecting or ready for and they had to kind of play catch up wow so things my life changed as, about as overnight as possible in the music business. I got to ask you this. What was your, I know a lot of college students, at least back in the day, I don't know if that is still the case. You know, they always do the travel to Europe thing. What was the impetus for you to go to Europe with your guitar back in the day? Well, what had happened, I grew up on Long Island and uh, my father was a very charismatic, flamboyant character. He was in show business and he had a show called the Aqua Show on the side of the World's Fair there in Flushing. Oh, great. Flushing Meadows. And then a very kind of politically charged restaurant. People like Rockefeller or Bobby Kennedy would be there and Roosevelt Field. And then he suddenly passed away oh, so uh, at 48. He had a heart attack and I was 16. And my family just kind of imploded. Mm. And I think that was really the impetus that I really wanted to get away wow. from all that. And uh, when I did go to Europe, uh, I suddenly felt, I mean, I, I was 22, I think, and I okay. felt that weight lifted from me. It probably has a lot to do with why I'm there today, you know, why I chose to live in Paris, you know. But, uh, I mean, but my roots are about as American as you can get, certainly my musical roots. Uh but that was really, and also I had missed the summer of love in San Francisco. Oh, okay. But this was kind of happening, a delayed reaction in Amsterdam, in Europe at that time, you know. And they were, it was really the same thing that was happening uh, in San Francisco was then happening in Amsterdam. And so it was just a really fertile ground to jump into. Now, when you went to Europe, did you have connections there or did you just kind of throw caution to the wind and... See what say la vie as we no no okay. I'm, I'm still grateful to a very good friend of mine at the time whose name was Rory Calhoun another Long Island same name as the movie actor but a different guy okay and uh, he knew Europe because his brother was uh, living with a famous American actor named Farley Granger okay who was in Alfred Hitchcock's Stranger on a Train. So this was Rory's connection, and he would—he had already been there, and he came back. He said, "We got to go back," and so I went back with Rory and another friend of mine. And so he—he he knew his—he knew the lay of the land. You know, we went to Amsterdam, and then to Brussels, and then to Paris, and then really spent most of my time in Rome. Wow, wow! So I got to ask you this: in reading your bio, you were in a Fellini film, and I'm like, man, where did that come from? Was that your friend who helped you get into that? And it's just. It, it was. Okay. It probably takes longer to read I was in the Fellini film than the amount of time I was in the film. But uh, we were in Rome and I was kind of playing on the streets in front of restaurants. We passed the hatch and hopefully make enough money to go into the restaurant and eat then. And uh, Farley Granger, who was this very well-known American actor at the time, he heard that Fellini was making a film and uh, called Roma. And we should go out to Cinecittà, which was the major film studio there. Mm-hmm. Try an audition. So by this time, my brother Matthew had joined me, who you also met at the Long Island Music Hall of Fame. Right. And uh, we went out there, and he, like, took a peek through the door <laughs> and said, okay, and hired us as extras for a week. And wow. uh, I'm, I'm in the film. I mean, you can see me. It's very short. <laughs> but, of course, my best parts are on the cutting room floor. But it was just an amazing experience to work with him. He was like the king of Rome at the time. They would shut down the traffic on the Colosseum for him to to film, which uh, certainly is not the case <laughs> anymore. But uh, that was my introduction into show business, I guess. I So I got to ask you this. Being an American in Europe, I would assume not knowing Europeans that well, that you must be somewhat of a curiosity, this American rocker uh, coming into town and bringing, you know, popular, you know, because rock and roll is popular all over the world and bringing that, it must have been some sort of curiosity. That had to help, I would think, in opening some doors for you. I think it did. Uh Some cities were certainly more international than the other. Amsterdam had a pretty lively music scene going on and they had a club called the Paradiso where many fan all the English bands came there to play. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But other places like Paris and Rome, Rome, when I went to Rome in 71, you could not get a cheeseburger in the whole city. Wow. That's how isolated they were. But so when I was singing on the streets and I was, you know, I was singing Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones and even Leonard Cohen. Yeah, great. Uh, they were, I was a novelty, I think, you know. Wow. That's, that's great. I mean, um, so you go to you go to Europe, you come back, right? You spend your yeah. time here in the United States. By the way, and I gotta tell the audiences, there's so much to your story that you have to investigate because I'm I keep saying this. I'm really fascinated by it. So you come back, you have this taste of success, and I hate using that word success because you're not defined by anybody else's ruler. Uh you really kind of took charge of what you wanted to do in my eyes in the limited things that I know about you. What was the impetus of, Hey, you know what? I don't like the scene. I'm going to Europe. What, what, what happened? What happened to you to then at then? What happened? I made these four albums on the major labels. Um, Aqua show was my original ones. Then they sent RCA bought my contract from Polydor because Polydor at that time was really a fledgling company in America. They didn't really know what they were doing. And uh, so RCA bought my contract and they sent me out to L.A. to record with Paul Rothschild, who was the Doors producer. producer. Mm -hmm. Did an album out there with just a star-studded session musician, Jim Gordon. Okay. Wrote Layla had a tragic ending with um, a psychotic episode. Uh, uh, Richard T played with um, Paul Simon for a long time. Anyway, we did the second album, Lost Generation. And again, great critical response. Moderate sales, but not the explosion they were waiting for. The third album, I came back to New York. It was called Night Lights, mm-hmm. and Billy Joel played on that album. Wow. And that's when we had known each other briefly before that, but we kind of re-cemented our relationship during that album. I opened a lot of shows for him. Nice, nice. I opened a show for him in Allentown, you know. He wrote the, the quintessential song about that, that city. And then I went to um, to Columbia and did one album. I went to London to record, and that's where Mick Taylor and Phil Collins played on that album. Mm. And again, it just really wasn't shaking things up in America. And then in 1979, I was offered to play a show in Paris. Uh, and I, would, I had been dropped by Columbia by that point. And I was really, you know, I was in the wilderness. And I went to Paris to do the show. I thought it was going to be in a little club with 150 people. Right. It was like 1,000 people. Holy shit. Wow. It's- Six encores. They knew all my songs. And I had no idea any of this music had made any impact in Europe. Wow. Wow. And so when that happened, I said, whoa, there's something happening here. And between 1979 and 1989, my career really shifted to Europe. And I started going more to tour over there. I played the Montreux Jazz Festival in 1983. And I... Started expanding outside of France, also into, well, Switzerland, Italy, Spain, which has turned into, you know, I play more concerts in Spain almost than anywhere else. Scandinavia, everywhere except the UK. So it was a very odd journey in that most Americans, they go through the UK and then that comes down to to Europe. But I went, I caught on in the continent. So in that 10-year period, Steve, Everything shifted, and finally in 89, I moved to Europe full-time. See, in my own imagination, and before you told me this story, I'm thinking, he met a girl. He met a girl. That's why he's, that's why he's in Paris. Come on. It's Paris, for God's <laughs> okay. sakes. There is a little bit of that, too. All right. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> in 1983, I was on tour in France, and I was playing in a – town called Combe, C-A-E-N, which is in Normandy, very near the D-Day beaches. Okay. And of course, after the show, there was one restaurant open and I went to that restaurant and there was a little group of actors and actresses in there who were also on tour. And I met this one particular French actress whose name was Francoise, still is. And uh, actually, my bass player got her number and I said, if you want to keep playing with me, you have to give me that number. <laughs> and he did and we... Had a couple of dates, 
But this was in 83. And then I went back to America and I did not see or hear from her for six years. Wow. And when I went back to Europe in 1989, I looked for her and I found her. And Steve, we've been together ever since. We celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary just oh, last year. Congratulations. I'm, I'm in the 30 mark as well. So, uh, wow. Man, nobody picked I mean, her up for six years. You're, you're a pretty lucky guy. Well, we both had a lot of uh Yeah, the little twists and turns. I won't go into that. But. Twists and turns. <laughs> but luckily, at that moment, we were both free. And we have a son, Gaspar. Mm-hmm. Murphy, he's 32, and he's also in the music business, kind of a producer and mixer. Right. He helped um, redo the Aqua show. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's produced my last four or five albums. He, he's pretty successful here also as a songwriter and a producer. So every once in a while, when he has enough time for his old dad, he'll uh, get me <laughs> he'll, th- he'll throw you a bone. He'll, he'll give, exactly. He'll give you some time. That's pretty cool. Hey, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the song, Everything I Do, uh, that our audience got to hear before my introduction of you. Just give me some background on that. And uh, then we'll take a quick break and uh, jump into some other things. Okay, everything I do leads me back to you. And the reason it has a very long title, because we had to differentiate it from the uh, Brian Adams song, okay, which I think is just called Everything I Do. And I didn't think of that when I wrote it. But that was from an album called Selling the Gold in 1996. And when I wrote that song, I said, Bruce Springsteen would really could really sing. There was a verse that could really sing the chorus well. And uh, I went to see Bruce at, at his home in New Jersey because we've been, we've been friends a long time. Very nice. And in 1992, he invited me on stage to sing with him in Paris at a show. Wow. I, we sang my song Rock Ballad together, and that was kind of, in a way, cemented the relationship, I would say. So when this song came up, I asked him if he would sing on it. And being the gracious, generous soul that he is, he said, yeah, okay, no problem. Wow. So I went back to to uh, Belgium, actually, to record and recorded the basic tracks and all that stuff. And I said, well, we called up Bruce. We recorded it, Bruce. Can we, uh, I'm going to send it to you. And I said, what should we send? Now, I'm going to use some technical terms, but I said, should we send a DAT, which used to be a little digital? Oh, sure. I remember. I said, should we send an ADAT, which was an eight-track digital thing, or should we send a... And he said, well, I think Sony just gave me two 32-track digital machines, and they're in my kitchen. (laughs) And this was really when digital recording was just beginning. This was before Pro Tools. Wow, okay, sure. There was... So they sent him the tapes, and then I didn't hear anything for a month. I got, and then the phone rang one morning about four o'clock in the morning. Of course, Elliot, it's Bruce. I did it. I did it. And I was waking, what? And then he sent it to us. And I was so thrilled because he not only sang the choruses, he sang a whole verse. Nice. Also, because then, uh, as your listeners heard, there's, and I think he just could not resist. The uh, automobile symbolism in there. It's a line about him rolling on my rims, you know. <laughs> I don't think he could resist that. So it was, it was just, you know, I've had so many marvelous moments with him. He invited my son and myself to sing Born to Run with him on uh, in a venue called the Stade de France, the French stadium, and it's 80,000 people. Oh, my God. Wow. Imagine what a thrill that was. Wow. Amazing. Well, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. Man, there's so much to digest here and a lot of good stories to come. So stick with us, everybody. At the Long Island Sound, we're much more than a podcast. We're building a community. Please go to gigdestiny.com. Check out all our social media links. Subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast. Please comment. Call the listener line. Tell us what you think, what questions we should ask, who we should have on the show. And most of all, we thank you for your generous support. And remember, support the artists who are guests on the show. Now back to the podcast. We're back with the fascinating Elliot Murphy, because I'm fascinated, and I'm sure you are too. And Elliot, this big move to Paris is kind of amazing to me. And I, I, I want you to touch upon this. And I heard this in an interview that you did, 
talking about how music, rock music, is more looked as, at as a cultural thing in France as opposed to the United States. And maybe you could touch on that and what it's like living in Paris. And you certainly got so many accolades. I can't even pronounce them in French. I apologize. But uh, it's it's a kudos to what you've done for that country and, and how you've affected the culture musically. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I don't know if I've affected their culture so much because, <laughs> believe me, French are pretty entrenched in their culture here, but they have been very kind and generous to me, and they made me a, a chevalier de, des arts, des ordres, des arts et lettres, which means a knight of the order of art and letters. Wow. And I got a nice medal. I could, I wore it once when they gave it to me. I don't know if I'll wear it again. So, so you, can get a, get, you can get a table anywhere, I would think. Well, maybe if I wore it. <laughs> and then they, uh, they gave me um, the medal to the the, the city of Paris, which I always joke, then I don't have to pay to get on the subway, which is totally not true. <laughs> but uh, yes, when I, that that definition you you touched upon about how popular music in France was looked upon more as culture than as show business. Right. I mean, a good example of that. There was a famous movie by the French Swiss director Jean Luc Godard, who died recently with the Rolling Stones. You know, he recorded, he filmed them recording "Sympathy for the Devil." This has changed now. I mean, the music business has become so much more international. But certainly, when I came here, uh, people like Bob Dylan, or Leonard Cohen, or Lou Reed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the French discovered Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground before anybody. Wow. And uh, Lou came here to do a show, I know, with John Cale and Nico after the Nico, after the Velvet Underground had broken up. So I And also, I had a little connection with them because the man who discovered me uh, in New York was a critic named Paul Nelson. Okay. And he used to work for Mercury Records, went to school with Bob Dylan. I mean, he has a long history, too. But uh, he, he was putting out an album of the Velvet Underground called Live 1969. Mm-hmm. Now, this is back in 73, before my first album came out, when I was knocking on doors looking for a deal. And he asked me if I'd like to write liner notes. Hmm. And I wrote liner notes for that album, which is still on it, sometimes... Fans bring it for me to sign. And that's how I got to meet Lou Reed. And I think that really established my uh, bona fides here in France because Lou Reed was really taken seriously as... Because the French love New Yorkers, too. You know, he was a New Yorker, a poet, mm-hmm. a poet maudit, as they say, which means kind of a damned poet. And, uh, and I think that really helped me establish me. So... You know, oftentimes, Steve, I'm contacted by singer-songwriters in America asking me, should they move to Europe and start here? And I say, hey, you know, it's a great place to live, but I never could have done it here if I hadn't already started in America, if I didn't come here with a certain name value. Sure. You know, and uh, they didn't have to discover me, you know. Right, right. They, they were reading Rolling Stone, you know, and they, they knew about my connection with Lou Reed and all that. So, yeah, at that time, certainly, and by the time I went to Spain, you got to remember when Franco died in 76, there was no rock and roll in Spain. It was, they, it was illegal, you know. Wow, wow. So I was, when I started playing there in 82, I think I was kind of like, I was looked upon as that first wave, you know, like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or right, something. Right. Uh, so I was very fortunate that I did start playing here very early on and at a time where the not so many Americans came over here because it's a long way to come. Now everybody tours everywhere. Sure, you know, sure. All the time. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, no, not the, at all, but the, that's... Uh, I can't, I was in the at the right place at the right time to do my second act of my musical career here in Europe. Well, you notice I, I fancy singer songwriters or kind of like Springsteen, the very successful ones are excellent storytellers. And then there's that bridge into writing to being a journalist. 
how did that happen for you? Was it the liner notes or were you already writing for Rolling Stone? What gave you the credibility to say, hey, this guy can write prose? Uh, you know, I always had this kind of schizophrenic approach to um, culture. You know, I love literature. Mm-hmm. And I love music. And, uh, you know, growing up on Long Island, I used to drive around the North Shore there where Gatsby took place. Right, you know, right. Fitzgerald lived in Great Neck. And, uh, and Jack Kerouac actually lived for quite a while in Huntington. Wow. Okay. Long Island, you know, Long Island has a tremendous literary heritage. If you include Queens and Brooklyn, I mean, then you get Henry Miller and you go back to Walt Whitman. Yeah, sure. Right. You know, the first great American poet. So when I took that trip, I mentioned to Europe in 71. I remember I carried a little portable Olivetti typewriter and I had my guitar and it was it was really a question of which direction I was going to go in. And uh, I once said in an interview, I think it was in Italy, they turned off the lights in this TV studio and said, how would you describe yourself? And I said, well, literature is my religion and rock and roll is my addiction. Uh, And I think that really sums it up for me. So I kind of need the both. Uh, I've been much more successful as a as a singer songwriter than I have as a writer, but I've kept my foot in there and I've published couple of novels that have been translated into a bunch of languages. And I wrote my memoir a couple of years ago called Just a Story from America. And that was, that was a very illuminating experience. Yeah. When you, particularly when you, you know, as we get older, now I'm 61 and, and you start looking back, I'm almost afraid to write my memoir, <laughs> see all the twists and turns that I've could have made or I've made. And, and I'm a happy man and I'm married and I have a beautiful daughter named Faith. So I'm very, I feel very blessed. Uh, but to take that time and, you know, analyze and look back, I mean, it must've been difficult at times I would think, or, you know, how long, how, how long did it take you to write a memoir? Well, I started it as a small piece that I, I tried to get published in the New Yorker. Oh, okay. And, uh, I actually got it to, uh, to the editor there. What's his name? David, um, anyway. And uh, they said they didn't think it was right for the New Yorker, but they were very encouraged about the piece, about the piece, and suggested I turn it into a memoir. And uh, I just kept, you know, hacking away, you know, day after day, month after month. And the thing about writing is, uh, it takes a lot of time. It's a very lonely occupation, you know. It's not like you're on. Nobody applauds after a great sentence is written. Right. Right. Uh, but uh, eventually it started to take form. And at one point I was lost really in the midst of the memoir because some, it was turning into a discography or a uh, kind of a discussion of the, the, the foils of the music business. And I, I asked Bruce Springsteen because his, his great memoir, yeah, I, read, to run it, I read it. Great. Great, huge success. And I said, Bruce, I'm a little lost. What do you think I should, what do you write about? And he said, well, when I was writing mine, I just wrote about those things that were important to me. I didn't make it chronological completely. I didn't go album by album. I just tried to remember those things and events that were very important to me. And that really helped clarify my mission. And uh, I did write it, and it was published uh, in Spanish. It was published in, in French, did quite well in France. And uh, there's an English version available as well. Wow. What I, you know, I read the, uh, the Springsteen biography. i got to be honest to you, I cried. It was just, there were, th- yeah. there were things in his biography that I could um, really tie myself to, certain things. Um, you know, his working through depression, his dad's depression, uh, which and this ultimately came out to be, you know, Springsteen on Broadway, uh, exactly. which, yeah, may, which made could... me cry, too. <laughs> you know, me too. yeah, I saw it, it was, yeah, it was yeah. so beautiful. But, you know, it's interesting when you just tell me the story about the New Yorker and I was thinking about the studios. It almost seems to me, don't take this the wrong way, is the studios at the time didn't know what to do with you. The New Yorker didn't know what to do with you. 
But I admire, seriously, I admire your fortitude in going, going forward and creating your own path. Um, it could have been very easy to say, yeah, well, they didn't think too much of it, so I'll put this thing aside in both instances. And I don't think you did that. I didn't do that. I won't tell you it never crossed my mind. There was a period in the mid-'80s where really not much was happening for me in America. Mm-hmm. And singer-songwriters had become like a dirty word. You know, there was... If you hadn't already made it, like Billy or Bruce, it was hard. There was punk, there was New Age, MTV, everything was visual. Right. And uh, I decided I was going to become a lawyer. Really? Wow. Yeah. So I got a job at a law firm. It was an entertainment law firm in Park Avenue. And uh, I went back to school. I got my degree. And... uh, and I'm sitting there, and I, I was working as a paralegal for a lawyer there, mm. a great guy named from Long Island named Don Zacharin. That's how I got the job, because he was from Long Island, course, and he, right. he had heard of me. And uh, I'm sitting there for a few weeks, and this other attorney who was representing Madonna and a lot of people, he came across to where my desk was, and he said, listen, I have a lot of clients coming in here, and they say to me, you look just like this singer-songwriter, Elliot Murphy. <laughs> And I say, yeah, that's me. And he said, what are you doing here, man? Wow. And I said, well, things are tough with the music business. I'm thinking of becoming a lawyer. And he looked at me and put his hand on his shoulder and said, don't do it. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) He said that with such conviction that I did not do it. But interesting enough, at one point, I think when Bruce broke up the E Street Band for that short period, Max Weinberg considered becoming a lawyer, too, and went back to school. It's, it's amazing. And you know what? Then you meet the lawyers. Uh, who doesn't want to be a rock and roll star? And they see a rock, <laughs> they see a rock and roll star. They go, what are you doing, man? <laughs> Don't steal do? my dream. Go back at it, right? Well, you know, there's all different kind of rock stars. I mean, a lot of us. It's eight hours of travel for two hours of stage time, you know, and it's uh, not a lot of sleep and all those and getting sick on the road and still the show must go on and all that stuff, you know. So it's not all uh, Saturday Night Live, as we say. Oh, I know. You know, and the one thing I can equate to that as a layman is early in my business career, I had the travel book. I want, you know, I, I went to South America. I'm in sales here and there all over the United States. And it might seem very romantic until you're there talking to your spouse and you're going, hey, guess where I am? And they're back at home going, oh, yeah, guess where I am? I'm in front of the sink with a crying baby. And, you know, and you, you can't you can't help because you're thousands of miles away. So there is that aspect to it for sure. And then you do. You know, you regret that time away when you you wish you would have been there, especially when my son was young. But I was lucky in that I was touring in Europe. I was never had to go away for too long a time. Right, right. Sure. I I think I was never away for more than two or three weeks nonstop. Yeah. But then again, also, I heard this in one of your interviews that, you know, the stage is your home to a certain extent. That's where, you know, performing. Tell me if I'm wrong is a, a happy place for you to be. And it's all working towards that to a certain degree, I would think. That is so true. That is, and the road life, the life on the road is very seductive because when you're just in a hotel room, between that hotel room and your stage and your backstage, you can organize your whole life right there. You know, it's uh, it's like a movable reality you know but it's pretty much the same yeah you know i i almost looked at it this way being on the road and i used to point out watch these other business guys who led the double life you know they're away from their wife and they're you know out on the hunt and they're you know being knuckleheads uh and i i could see that in music as well you know it's almost like the kid who goes to college and has no guardrails and you know just just lets things run amok and can can take control of your life, which we've heard too many of those stories. And, and let me ask you this. It, did that happen to you? Did you get out of control? Not so much okay, because good. by the time I moved to Europe, I really left all my demons behind me. Good for you. You know, the seventies were a pretty wild time. Uh, cocaine came in like a plague on the music business, you know? Right. But by the, so by the time I was really here on tour, I had, 
And also, I've been self-managed for a very long time, so I really had to stay on top of the business to make things happen. Wow. Hey, that's actually a perfect lead-in for the second song that you brought to the table called Hope in Your Eyes. Why don't you talk about that, and let's we'll let the audience listen to it. <coughs> Sorry. Sure. Take a little sip of water. <coughs> Hope in Your Eyes came about... I think it was the first confinement here. Mm, okay. Ours, which was quite severe. We were only allowed out an hour a day. <coughs> Sorry. And I was down like everybody else. I mean, that I had never, nothing like that had ever happened to me before as the rest of the world. Sure. And at one point I said to my wife, I said, you know, I, I feel no inspiration out of this, uh, pandemic i don't think i'll ever write another song holy shit and she wow. said she said to me <coughs> she said to me elliot you've got to have hope and i literally started that song that night and that started me writing most of the songs that are on wonder my new album Wow. That's so that was really it. She was the inspiration. You got to have hope. And uh, and then I started doing, during the confinement, something called the Corona Couch Concerts, which was an internet concert at home. I do three or four songs every night. Oh, wow. It was on Facebook, uh, FaceTime, uh, no, Facebook and uh, Instagram. And we ended up doing 94 of those. Wow. Wow. So that, and it was really, it was for the fans, but it was for me. Yeah, I keep, I, you know, you got a bunch of guitars there buying you. Keep the calluses on my fingers, you know? Exactly, exactly. And uh, so we started doing that, and then I started writing more songs. But the Hope was really the song that really broke that depression I was in when the, when the pandemic. Because for me, everything stopped. I had a I – the day they shut down Paris, I was supposed to play that night in Paris, my oh, big wow. show of the year. Wow. That was canceled. I was on my way to New York for a premiere of a movie I had been in called Broken Poet. That was canceled. Everything, everything stopped for me. Yeah, it's it's like watching the rug get pulled out. I can almost equate it to you as a performer is like a bird in a cage, you know, in the pandemic. You know, you're meant to fly. Yeah, you, you'll go in the cage once in a while. But when that cage is locked, man, it just throws you for a loop for sure. I don't think anything was hit as badly besides live music because they even did sporting events without a public, but it's very hard to do a concert without an audience. Yeah. Know, I, I even, even uh, playing, you know, these concerts that you did. And I, I know a guy named Dante Mazzelli who did it from his, uh, from his balcony in Chelsea on the 17th floor every night, he and his wife during COVID. Uh, wow. And he built a quite a following. And, I, you know, one of the questions I asked him, I said, you know, it's a certain position to, uh, you know, there's that audience back and forth. And you've gotten that vibe, you know, whether it's a room of five people or 5,000 people. Uh, but now to do it to a camera, uh, you have to have a good imagination and, and really love what you do. And maybe you're playing for yourself, but you're also broadcasting out to the world and, and uh, making an opportunity of what tools are available. So I think that's kind of cool. Well, we could see a little interaction. People would write comments. Right, a little chatting um, going on, yeah. Chatting going on. And uh, now we have kind of re-begun exactly. out there. I, I, mean, I, I think this year I will have done something like 25 shows. Uh, the year before COVID, I did 60, which was about normal. Sometimes I did as many as 100. But, and I think this next year it's building up and... Things are slowly getting back to Yeah, me. there's a pent-up demand. So, uh, hey, without any further ado, hope in your eyes. Check it out, everyone. I like a pen with no ink And my brain forgot to think But still I can hustle Along on my muscle 
memory Like a car with no gas I know I'm not moving fast But I still get a thrill song uh we're back with elliot murphy and probably songs of hope my hope is that a lot of songs were written during covid about hope because that's what's something we have to cling on to as we get through our struggles and our illnesses in the world today so thank you for that elliot i really liked listening to that that song it's interesting the songs that have generated interest from the public because i have another song called a touch of kindness and uh, somehow during the pandemic, that song jumped to over like two and a half million streams on Spotify. Really? Maybe that it struck a, a common chord with everybody. Oh, yeah, we of- can certainly get into how unkind we all are to each other. And uh, it seems to get exasperated yeah. in politics and everything else. So um, we've got to find a bridge back, you know. Um, and I'm one of those believers that music heals the world. A good friend of mine, Mike Nugent, once said that to me. Mike's from Huntington. 
I used to be with Cadillac Moon, and he and I asked, "Why do you do it, Mike?" He says, "My music heals the world," and I I thought it was the corniest thing for him to say, and then I really thought about it, and I'm like, you know what? It really does, and it really can't. So, um, all right, I'm off my soapbox. Let's talk about Elliot Murphy. <laughs> so, Elliot, tell me tell me about the books, the writing. Uh, what what are your plans for the future? What you got coming up? There's that pent up demand, I think, uh, after quarantine, uh, to hear more live music. At least that's what I feel here on Long Island. What's happening in your part of the world? My latest project uh, <laughs> is called Elliot Murphy's Rock Dreams. Come uh, on, and this is a very bizarre one. I have dreamt about rock stars ever since I can remember, but I never wrote it down. Okay. So about a year or so, I decided I would start writing down these dreams and putting them up on my Facebook page. And I'm up to number 86. Holy shit. And uh, the opening one, the first one I wrote down was very strange. We were I was in a rehearsal with the Beatles, and John Lennon was fooling around. And I was saying, come on, guys, we we got to get to work. And Paul McCartney said, don't worry, we'll come up with something. <laughs> And uh, it's taken off from there, and I have 86 of them. And I think when I get to 100, I'm going to publish that book, Rock Dreams, find someone to illustrate it with all those uh, famous faces. Uh, I have an album of covers I've wanted to do for a long time called 1961. Now, 19, why 1961? Because that was the year I started playing guitar. That's, that's the year I was, I was born. Years old. Excellent. Well, it's an excellent, go. excellent title. <laughs> Good vintage. And I went, uh, I went to Quigley's Music Center, which was in New Hyde okay. Park, with my mother, and I started taking guitar lessons. And so that's a lot of songs around that year. Songs like uh, "Run Around Sue" by Dion. Sure. I think I love that song. Uh, when I was seventeen, by Frank Sinatra. A lot, a lot of songs. So uh, that's a project that I've been working on for a while and I hope to get that out next spring. I also have a project of Lou Reed solo songs from his solo album, not Velvet Underground songs, but from his solo work that I'm I'm working on. So so on the musical side there's that. Well let me let and, before you go on to the other side of things, I'm just just how does that work out logistically when you sing other songs that are part of public domain so that it's free reign, or is there a lot of legal hurdles you have to go through in order to publish it well this this is one of the uh, most misunderstood aspects of the music business once someone has recorded a song anybody can record that song okay. you don't have to ask permission you can't change it you can't change the words or you know theoretically you shouldn't you couldn't leave out a verse or and it should be but Really, once a song has been, quote, published, which means recorded and released to the public, as in published, anybody can record it. So there's really no problem. Oh, so there's no problem when yeah. you record it. However, if I took somebody else's music and tried to throw it on something commercially, then I'm infringing on that copyright. Then you got to get uh, asked for permission and get right. That, as in sampling, that's what that's right. About. That whole, yeah. you know, if it's less than sixteen seconds, kind of BS. I think it is right. Exactly. Yeah, that's a different. Okay, thing. so if you record it, no problem. You don't have to throw any shekels to anybody. No, because they will get paid by the publishing, which is gets paid automatically. Yeah, yeah. and if anybody can you figure know, that out, you, uh, God bless you. There's a thing called the mechanical rate, which is things that are the publishing side, which comes off recorded. And then on radio or on Spotify, there's some money that goes to the publisher. Gotcha. I, a good example, one of my songs, Drive All Night, was recorded in a hit in Japan by a group called the Roosters. I didn't even know about a year until years after it happened. Wow. What'd you, th what'd you, what'd you think of it when you heard it? I loved oh, cool. it. Basically... Anybody records any of my songs. I love Greg Kinn did a great version of one of my songs. Uh, you, you familiar with yeah, Greg? Yeah, sure, sure. 
Yeah. He did a song of Michael Anastasia on one of his albums, and I love that too. Those are my two favorite covers, Greg Kinn and the Japanese band, The Roosters. Nice. I cut you off. You were going to go in another direction. I apologize. Well, I think I was just talking, you were asking about future plans and, you know, getting back on the road. And uh, I do want to do more writing. Uh, I had a Western novel that was published in, in France some years ago called Poetic Justice. And I kind of want to watch write the next part of that novel. There's a part two to be to written of that novel. So. Nice, nice. We'll see what happens. Cool. All right. So when you're sitting down with coffee with Bruce and Billy, you know, just mention the Long Island Sound podcast. And, you know, this guy's not such a jerk. And I'm from Long Island. I mean, I got that going for me. <laughs> well, Bruce is not from Long Island. Yeah, Let's I, not I know. I'd, I, you know, I might make an exception if he agreed to do the podcast. I got to think. I got to think about it. Been, I've never been in the same room with Bruce and Billy together. Who knows? Maybe it's the same person, but... <laughs> I love them both. I mean, coming from Long Island, you talk to anybody, they have six degrees of separation of a Billy Joel story of some brother-in-law who knows this or this happened, that sort of thing. And uh, I can listen to Bruce uh, all day long. I just he, He's just an amazing guy and what he's done. He's been very transparent with his life and uh, all, all the yes. kudos to him. And, and it's really, it's interesting talking to a guy who sang with him. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's it's pretty good. Anyway, I digress. Hey, let's talk about, speaking of rock stars, let's talk about the last song or the last of the rock stars. Tell me a little bit about that, and then we'll have our audience listen to it. The last of the rock stars was written on my first trip to Europe. Oh. And it is probably the song that I've played at literally every concert. I think I've done about 2,600 concerts in my wow. life. And I think I played it literally at every show. Because when I first came to Europe, rock stars were dropping like flies. Mm. Jim Morrison had died in Paris. before. Janis Joplin had died. Of course, Jimi Hendrix had died. Brian Jones had died. And the line in that song, rock and roll is here to stay, but who will be left to play? You know, it really, it looked shaky there for a while. And that was really, so there was that element in that song. And it was really just a song expressing all my hopes and dreams yeah. to somehow climb up that rock and roll mountain, which in a, in a certain manner or fashion, I guess I did. You sure did. All right. Let's take a listen to Last of the Rock Stars. And we'll be right back after the song. Stick with us, everyone. inside he was born to be the king he was born to be the man and he died though he was holy or oh, jimmy understand when i say the last of the rock stars me and you rock and roll is here to stay and who'll be left to play 
drug habit means guitar, you gotta have it. Got your accent, got your group. Your old man thinks it's a waste to loot ya. Wait a week for an Ed Sullivan show, a travel you wanna go. Your homework is never complete. You don't care, cause you got that beat. That's out to play, and some of us are masters, and some of us are slaves. And then there's that boy that knows he's gotta play, and a messy desk drawer are full of broken strings. You know these kids, and you know those things. And I say, the last of the rock stars, me and you. To stay and who we left to play. Woo-hoo-hoo. I call my mama, please don't cry. Don't you know what I feel inside? I'm with Elliot Murphy. Elliot, uh, during the break, we were talking about you recently being in Italy and doing some charity events. So tell me a little bit about that. It kind of strikes close to my heart. Well, as I was saying, Parkinson's disease is close to my heart, too, because it struck a good friend of mine named Bob Benjamin, uh, who was my manager, once organized a cross-country tour from Long wow. Island to L.A. in 1996 for me. Used to work at Billboard and uh, is in the Bruce Springsteen camp and Helps Bruce to find uh, songs he can no longer <laughs> find. And Bob came down with, with Parkinson's. And they started a, an association called the uh, Light of Day, named after one of Bruce's songs. And I, there's a series of started with a concert at the Stone Pony in Asbury Park that I think Bruce has played at 13 out of 20 concerts. The organizer is a singer-songwriter named Joe Durso. And he also brings this... Uh, event to Europe and they travel all around Europe to raise awareness, to raise money. And he asked me if I wanted to come along and gave me a list of the shows here. So I picked the four Italian shows because I was a free during that period. So I joined uh, Joe as well as a a bunch of great singer songwriters, Ben Arnold, uh, Jeffrey Gaines, uh, a Canadian uh, woman who's just fabulous, Miss Emily. And Joe, and we played four shows, one near Venice, uh, one near Trieste, another near Lugo, and another mm, near Lake Como. Nice. We just, and uh, one of the shows, I was thrilled because I'm a huge fan of Alejandro sure, Escovito. Yeah. Do you know? And he was also on tour in uh, Italy, and he came by the show, and Alejandro and I sang oh, Sweet neat. Jane together. That's great. By the way, so that was really fun. So that was really the last thing I did. And uh, I'm lucky I got through it because, man, the day I arrived in Paris, I came mm. down with 102 fever and I've been in bed for a week with this damn flu. I'm with you. I'm sympathetic, brother, as you can hear in my voice, too. Yeah. One thing I want to point out to the audience is all the people that we mentioned and particularly this Light of Day charity, I'm going to have a link in the chapter mark. So if you want to donate, I encourage you to do that. Uh, you know, Parkinson's has touched my family and could see how debilitating it is. And, and the person that is suffering inside is still the same person. So, uh, you know, please take a look at the chapter marks uh, for more information on everybody we talked about today. And uh, hey, Elliot, um, I tell you, it was a, a real pleasure spending some time with you more than a five second conversation that we did at the Long Island Music Hall of Fame and a good friend of mine. And sometimes in my podcast this way, you know, we can always account for what's in our bank and what we own. We could never account for the time we have left here. 
the fact that you gave me your time is a, a real blessing uh, for me and for the audience. So I thank you for that. My pleasure, Steve, and I look forward to part two. All right, everybody. Take care, and as I say, be generous with your joy and let the music take you on a journey. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the time you spent with us. Please subscribe and comment and visit us at gigdestiny.com. Until next time, be generous with your joy, keep your spirits high, and let the music take you on a journey. Be well. Peace. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and comment on the show. We really love to hear from you. And call our listener line at 631-800-3579. Again, thanks so much. Be well.